Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. Today we get to spend some time with Gene Kwok, author of the instant New York Times bestseller, Searching for Sylvie Lee. Gene has a short story in the brand new collection of stories called Marple, 12 New Miss Marple Mysteries, celebrating the life and work of Agatha Christie. In this episode, we talk about Jean's creative process, why planning and outlining are so important to her work, writing mysteries, channeling the voices of Agatha Christie and Miss Marple, and getting to contribute to a collection such as this. This show is chock full of advice from a writer that is in the thick of it right now and at the top of her game. We talked with Jean about the upcoming Write a Novel in 60 Days with Dabble Challenge, and Jean offered some sage advice for writers that are trying this daring challenge. If you would like to join in the challenge and write your dream with a community of like-minded writers at your side, go over to storycraft.cafe and sign up. Thanks for listening. Well, thanks for joining me uh, again today, everyone. Today, I am super excited to have one of my favorite writers back on the show with me, Jean Kwok. Uh, she was uh, Jean was on the show with us a couple of years ago. We were talking about searching for Sylvie Lee at that time had just come out in trade paperback, and in the last couple of years, Jean uh, Sylvie Lee has just gone all over the world what what a tremendous story this book has had and a uh, 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 you know it, it just a meteoric rise of a book one congratulations on all that and welcome back to the show well hank thank you so much you know you are just one of my favorite hosts i love your podcast i listen all the time um i just think that you put everyone at ease and that the stuff you talk about is really really relevant for both established and up-and-coming writers so um it's just a pleasure to be here thank you so much for having me well thank you thank you for coming um I've got a question that I've been asking people lately, and it's been a, a, a bit of a fun question, and I'm going to pose it to you now. Is there a piece of writing advice that you have gotten along your journey, and maybe it was so good um, that you refer to it often, or maybe it was so bad that you look back on it and laugh and either, you know, thank goodness I didn't take that advice or I wish I would never have taken that advice. Is there something like that? Maybe you've got one of each. I don't know. Um, but is there something like that that sticks out to you? Okay, Hank, I'm going to monologue now, okay? Because okay. I have such a long <laughs> answer to this. I'm sorry. Okay, bad advice first. Um, probably the worst piece of advice I ever got was when I was in the MFA writing program at Columbia and a famous professor who actually liked my work said to me, she said, you're not very good at writing fiction, are you? And I was just like, oh, oh my, my goodness. Oh no. You know, she thought that my autobiographical story was so powerful 
that that was what I should be writing. And, you know, that was what she herself was known for. And I can see where she was coming from, because probably at that time, I probably was better at writing, you know, my real life experiences than fictionalizing anything. Um, but the fact was, I didn't want to be a memoirist. I wanted to be a fiction writer and I wanted to write fiction. It was actually the only thing I wanted to do. Um, and I guess I would say to, you know, people who are starting out that you have to follow your heart. I think that in instinctively, you know what it is you want to do. And that is what you have to do. And maybe you're not as good at it as, you know, you should be or could be at this stage. I mean, believe me, I was so bad at everything. So if I can do it, you know, you can do it. Um, but you learn, right? If that's what you want to do, then you learn. And that is, through that is how you progress and where you wind up doing what you love to do. Um, about good fiction writing advice, you know, I'm very on this because I listen to your podcast. I read all books about fiction advice because I feel like I really need a lot of help. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of different, I think, from a lot of writers in that often the advice is something like put your butt in the chair and write. I'm like, right. well, you know, I'm sorry, but like to me, that's not very helpful. <laughs> I mean, I wish it were, but it, I, I am a person who could have the butt in the chair and write for 10 years and then produce like absolute drivel and then not yeah. get anywhere with the book. So I, I'm like, well, that's nice, but that's a little bit general, don't you think? Um, but I am, I'm very specific um, when it comes to writing and to writing advice. I taught a writing course um, about a year ago, and I don't do it often, but I did it as a favor. And, you know, there was another wonderful writer who was teaching another workshop concurrently with me. And in her workshop, they were like, you know, following their heart and they were singing from their soul. And it was very, very like inspiring. And so in mine, you know, we were doing stuff like, you know, summarize your novel in one sentence. And do you think it stinks or not? You know, so I'm not like the dance around the candle kind of advice writer, because much as I love dancing around the candle, it has not helped me. I have, you know, helps me to some extent. I mean, I also love dancing around the candle. and There's a time for that. But there's also a time when I think you have to kind of get down to the nitty gritty and move your book forward. And I right. think that, yeah, for me, I'm a real craft person. So, you know, obviously I believe in instinct and um, in a lot of ways, instinct does dominate. But at a certain point, I also think you need to figure out what you're doing. And I think that a lot of times um, a writer, especially a beginning writer, gets stuck because they don't know what they're doing. And the standard advice is, oh, write your way out, feel your way out. That does not work for me because I'm a person who could get lost walking around the block. Now you may say, <laughs> yeah, okay, that's unusual. That's true. So I'm probably unusually bad at that, but I could really wander around for 20 years in a book and never find my way to the end. So I, you know, I, I really, um, I write by instinct, but I also chart. Like I outline, I chart, I keep telling myself, what am I doing? What is this story about? What can happen? I, I look at three act structure. 
I think about three-act structure, you know, I don't always conform to it, but I think about, is there interesting stuff happening along the way? Do I have a climax? What climax do I want to work towards? How can I get to that climax in a really interesting way? Um, when I'm trying to build a character, I really build them, you know, so I write a bunch of stuff by instinct, but then I go back and we can get into this later, but I go piece by piece to develop a character that I think is interesting and fascinating and that can come to life on the page. Um, and so I, I do constantly tell myself what is happening? Who is this person? Where am I in the plot? I have a subplot. How does it tie into my main plot? Uh, I'm asking myself those questions constantly to make my novel into a cohesive whole. Okay. So much of what you <laughs> just sorry. said. I, I I'm just, sorry. <laughs> I, I should have been taking notes, but I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna try to hit on the uh the things that jumped out at me. That the the first part about what you said. Um when you had this writing instructor that thought you should be writing memoir. Um one thing about writing fiction is that we create all of these characters in our story, and invariably pieces of us wind up all over the place. Um, some people will read a book and think, oh, she's writing about herself. And, and well, yeah, um, but you, what, what a lot of readers don't get sometimes is that there are pieces of you – in, in a lot of the characters and the good guys and the bad guys and the in all of them in, in all right. of it. And, and, you know, maybe that's one thing that's uh, beneficial about writing uh, fiction over memoir. If we can even have that argue, I mean, there's so many tremendous memoirs out there, but you know, if, just for the sake of this conversation, um, it, you know, fiction, you get to, you get to be the hero and the villain in the story all over the place. And it doesn't have to uh, conform to what actually happened in the real world. That's kind of the fun of it. I, I completely agree with that. And I think that, you know, we're all built differently. We are all able to handle things in a different way. And I can't write memoir. I mean, there are a lot of reasons I can't. Like, I, I don't think I'm temperamentally suited to it. I think that I feel guilty about writing about real people. Um, and it's some things are just too difficult. You know, I don't, I like having that barrier of fictionalization and right. I, it's a kind of filter and that's where the creativity and the fun comes in for me. Like, as you know, searching for Sylvie Lee was based upon the real life disappearance of my brother. And if I had to write about that in a memoir form, that's just too painful and traumatic right. while translating it into the story of these two sisters and a sister who disappears and her shy younger sister who has to find her, that's actually fun. You know, that's real, but that's also enjoyable to me and I hope also to my reader. Has it surprised you at all that Searching for Sylvie Lee has connected with as many people as it has? Like, like obviously, it, it you know, like, like you said, there's that by moving it into this format, it it not only does it make it easier for you to tell the story, but it broadens the story to connect with so many different people. I think I think that's really true. Um, and I, I mean, I've been really thrilled with the reception that 
Searching for Sylvie Lee has received. I think that, um, you know, it becomes your real life or whatever emotional, artistic talent you might have that becomes, you know, kind of the clay that you can use to make something that's meaningful to yourself and hopefully also to others. And in, like you said, Hank, with fiction, you know, you, you have much more freedom to shape the material so that it's a kind of compelling ride for your reader as well. And I always try to do that. Um, Jean, I, right before we started recording, uh, I mentioned to you that we're kicking off uh, a writing competition or um, a challenge. Let's let's put it that way. Um, October first through the end of November, we're challenging people to write a novel in sixty days to to go from plan to execution to first draft at the end of it. And uh, and and I'm going to be writing a mystery. Um, so and this was I, I was so excited to talk to you today because there's so many questions I want to ask. Um, but you said that you are a person who likes to take your time and discover the story and really, um, you know, play in the writing, uh, if you will. But you also um, have to have the discipline of a plan and, uh, and you know, writing charts and things like that. How do you balance those two of, of wanting to be a discovery writer and uh, but knowing that that you have to do the, the business of being a writer? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I mean, first of all, I love the idea of writing that first draft in six in, you know, within a really short period of time. Right. Because I um, I can get really depressed when writing, you know. I can sit there and I can think, oh my god, I'm never ever going to get to the end of this thing. It's a monster, and I, I I find particularly the first draft to be so incredibly difficult uh, because you don't know anything. Like you don't yeah. know what's going to happen. Like it takes me five hours to buy a bottle of shampoo. So like you know, you can imagine when I'm in a book and there are a million decisions to be made. Right. Um, I find it very intimidating and very hard to decide. And I'm like, I did it wrong and I'm going to mess it all up. And then I'm going to write 4,000 pages, which I'll all have to throw away. So then I won't write any pages at all. So I can get really in a quandary. So I love that idea of getting through what I think is for most people, the most difficult part, getting that first draft on the page um, in a short, concentrated period of time. And I think that for me, at least, the step from the first draft to the second draft is tremendous. I mean, yeah. it's almost like a different book. But I need to have written the first draft or else I can't write the second draft. I think there are writers whose first draft looks much more like the second draft than mine. Mine can be a completely different animal altogether. I think your question about planning versus discovery is really interesting because I've been struggling with that myself. I just finished my next novel and I handed it in to my editor. We're almost through edits now. And when I was writing this novel, the one that's coming after Searching for Sylvie Lee, I really struggled with how much should I plan it before I actually start writing. And, you know, there are people who say you need to plan the whole thing. And there are writers who can do that. There are writers, they're excellent suspense and mystery writers, especially who can actually have a blueprint of the entire book from beginning to end, and they just execute it. 
and it's brilliant, you know, at the end. I can't do that. I, I tried. I did not. That did not work. Um, what works for me, what works for me is I need a kind of broad idea. So I need the posts along the way. So I kind of like, I know the initial setup. I know the big cool twist, you know, in the middle. And I pretty much know um, the climax, like what's gonna, actually in this new book, Basically, every character died at some point, at some revision <laughs> process. But so I wasn't quite sure who I was going to kill off. But in the end, um, you know, that was clear. But I did know somebody would die. Um, so I thought that was a plus. But so I kind of know the big, big things. But what I realized was that I, for me, I can't, I don't know enough. I, 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 I'm, I like, I can't fill in the whole outline at the beginning. So what I do is I have a very rough idea of the whole thing. And then I go back and I write like the first three chapters about, and then I revise those chapters until I actually like them so that I have some kind of foundation from which to work. And then from there, I know which characters I have. I know more about their lives. I know more about what I'm doing. And then I try to force myself to write it pretty roughly all the way until the end. And I might do some plotting and some other things. I don't polish too much at this phase, but I do have a polished beginning. I do have a few chapters that are um, almost in final form, just so that I, you know, I don't just have one big mess, you know, that yeah. I have something to build on. So you you write those first three chapters as a way to familiarize yourself with the characters, the world. I love that. I do the same thing. Uh, a lot of times I will, I, I just kind of need to write and just see who these characters are. What, what are they doing? And it's, it's this, you know, writing is the, the one thing in the world where you can say, well, I just listen to what the voices tell me and I write it down and no one looks at you like you're, you know, you need to be institutionalized or something. Um, but do, do you do you say three chapters because is that because that gets you up to an inciting incident, kind of where the story, where something happens in the story and it and the plot begins to take off, or are, are you is, is there some other reason why kind of three chapters is is the area that you use to get familiar with the story? Yeah, I think, you know, I try to get to the inciting incident actually as soon as possible. So I, I mean, you know, God, the world is becoming such a fast paced place, right? It right. used to be that you could take a hundred pages to get up there and your readers would be with you. But now in these days of the fast paced movies and video, you, you have to move fast because yeah. if you don't move pretty quickly, you've lost them. Um, so I do try to get to the inciting incident definitely within the first chapter. But I said three because I think it's kind of the setup, right? Sometimes it can be less than three. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit more. But what I, I guess what I mean is that I have more or less the setup where I know their situation. I know the world they're beginning in. I know their voice. That's really important to me to figure out who this person is that I'm writing and what it is that they, you know, how they sound and also some details about the world. And somehow I just don't know that until I've written them. Um, and once I have that set up, then I can kind of go on and flesh out the rest of the story. 
Um, we are talking today because you have a story in this gorgeous new volume, um, Agatha Christie's 12 New Mysteries Marple. And your story is uh, right here close to the middle. And uh, the Jade Empress is a phenomenal story. I love it so Aww, much. Um, and I, I, I told you earlier that I reread your entry this morning. Um, and it's just so much fun. Uh, one, how'd you get involved in this project? Well, um, it was really a, a surprise to me, but I received I received an email when they were putting together the initial group of writers. And so um, it was a tremendous honor for me because, you know, I was a I'm a poor working class first generation immigrant. And yeah. I used to read Agatha Christie on the subway while going to work at the factory in Chinatown as a kid. So trying to get to a good stopping point before I had to get off the subway and go to work. So, um, you know, it, it, it's really kind of mind boggling to me to be asked to write um, an original Miss Marple story, especially since Miss Marple herself is such an iconic character. And yes. the other writers in the collection are all enormous superstars. Well, let, let's... Uh... The other writers, Naomi Alderman, Lee Bardugo, Alyssa Cole, Lucy Foley, Ellie Griffiths, Jean Kwok, of course, uh, Natalie Haynes, Ruth Ware, Kate Moss, uh, Karen McManus, Val McDermott, uh, superstars. I mean, just absolutely the the best of the best. Um, When when you when they you know, offered this to you and kind of posed the idea. Did you immediately have an idea for a story or did you have to, you know, kind of put yourself like, what would Agatha Christie do? Um, How did you get in the, in the mindset? Well, you know, I, I knew right away that this had to be an Agatha Christie story, not a Jim Kwok story. And though, of course, you know, as the author, you always kind of filter through, I understood this was her story. And, you know, I I felt like everybody, even the other tremendous superstars who have very strong voices in the collection, we all understood that. Everybody is trying to channel Agatha Christie um, in their own unique way, but we're all big fans. That's how they picked us. You know, we're all um, we're all there with respect and humility to try to do justice to Miss Marple and to Agatha Christie. And so when it all started, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and they, you know, this was done together with the publishers, uh, the current publishers of Agatha Christie, who are extremely knowledgeable. I mean, they know her work inside out. So that was a fantastic resource to, you know, to kind of bounce ideas off of. And with Agatha Christie Legacy, which is basically run by James Pritchard, her great grandson, and they hold the rights to the estate. And they're the ones who you know, um, approved things like the recent movie, Death on the Nile, like anything that happens with Agatha Christie, they have to approve, especially something like this, which is a new, you know, a new project. Right. So, right. So I, so the editors were kind of like, well, so um, we want you to have creative license, but they were like, we have a few guidelines. um, And the guidelines were, you know, 
no big changes to her story. Like, don't get her married or engaged or have children or anything like that, right? No interaction with other um, Agatha Christie detectives uh, or other storylines outside of the Miss Marple universe. So they wanted to keep the universe and the time periods intact. And they wanted us to be inspired by a particular book if we wanted to do that. And to have a horticultural theme, to insert a kind of flower or something like that. Um, And then very early on, they asked us just very generally, they were like, would you mind telling us how you're planning to kill off all your victims? (laughs) Just because they were like, you know, we don't want everyone being stabbed. Like, you know, we can have a couple of stabbings, but like, let's not have all of them being pushed out the window, for example. Um, So I, you know, I, I was inspired by a Caribbean mystery um, by Agatha Christie because that takes her a little bit further away from England. And I also thought, you know, this is kind of a great opportunity to, you know, of course, be faithful to Miss Marple, but also to bring a fresh sensibility, right? To make her a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more diverse, because I really believe that if Agatha Christie had lived in this day and time, she would be rocking it and she would be cool and inclusive and all of those things. Um, Because Miss Marple is actually really a champion for the underdog, even though she was written so long ago. Um, So I wanted to put her on a cruise to Hong Kong, but I was a little bit scared to suggest this because, you know, she's mostly in England and, you know, doing her very British things. Um, So I suggested it very tentatively. And to my surprise, James Pritchard, her great grandson, was like, I love it. (laughs) I love this idea. Um, And he said, in fact, if it wouldn't interfere with your story too much, he's like, I he's like, we would love to see her actually in Hong Kong. And so that was just great to have that kind of creative license and support. Um, And so I felt like I, you know, I could bring her into a Chinese community and have her doing Tai Chi and waltzing and tasting dim sum while still being the quintessential Miss Marple. That that opening scene where uh, where they're waltzing or attempting to waltz was so, (laughs) so funny, yet so um, absolutely Miss Marple. It was it was just it was spot on, you know, for character. Um, So not only do you have the challenge of telling a Miss Marple story, but you have to tell it in a way that Miss Christie would have told it. And, you know, that's like two layers of, um, you know, getting your writer head in the right space. Um, What did you do to channel Miss Marple and then to then think about it in the way that you think Agatha Christie would have thought about it? That those are mental gymnastics that are, are, are crazy. You know, this is why I love your podcast, Hank. Those are just such excellent, excellent (laughs) questions. Um, And so what I did, first thing I did was I went back to a Caribbean mystery and I took it apart as a writer. So, of course, I had read it as a reader, but I went in and I outlined it. So I outlined it scene by scene. I outlined um, the point of view of each scene. I outlined the like plot shifts and where she planted the clues and where the red herrings were. So I just tried to look at it structurally 
to understand, you know, on a large scale, what Agatha Christie was doing in that novel. And I have to say, I was really so impressed by her craftsmanship. Um, she makes it look so deceptively easy. And, you know, you pick up one of our books, you're sucked in, and it's just such a pleasure to read from beginning to end. But there's actually a tremendous amount of craft and genius in the way she constructs those books. So um, in a lot of ways, I mirrored her structure in my short story, The Jade Empress, so that the opening scene and the following scenes actually almost run exactly parallel to her scenes. So although, you know, the story is different and every word is original, the structure moves the way hers does. and they're like little Easter eggs I planted for the savvy reader, like there's somebody with a glass eye. They're little references to the original yes. novel. Yeah, for people who know the book really well and want to look at it. So that was from a structural point of view to just understand what exactly she was doing technically. And then in terms of the voice, you know, that's one of the fun things of being a writer, right, is to read so much of a wonderful author until you can kind of hear the voice in your head and then to try to mimic that voice um, throughout the story. And I learned what I realized while doing it that actually there was so much humor in Agatha Christie, so much social commentary. You know, she'd have these little offhand funny remarks um, all the way through. And that was just really a lot of fun to write. Well, and Miss Marple is one of those characters that she's inherently different from Hercule Poirot. Um, and I hope I didn't murder that name. I, that's such a, difficult, such a difficult name to pronounce for, for silly Americans like me. Um, but um, the, you know, you, you've got a, a unique vantage point that, uh, that Miss Marple brings and you can do all sorts of new things that she couldn't do with uh, with the the inspector. You know that you've got a different sense of humor comes out. The the little quips like you talked about that are just quintessential Miss Marple. Um, th- those th- having those different tools in your writer toolkit of being able to to filter um, you know through these characters uh, are. Are genius. Um, I, I love it. I, I love how you brought her character out. The all the little idiosyncrasies that that make her up are are just spot on. Oh, I'm I'm so happy to hear that. And it was really really fun to do, but it was also difficult because a short story is short. So you've got to plant all of the clues without trying to be obvious, and you're very right. limited number of sentences and you know like you know readers are so savvy and smart that anytime you plan to detail they're like oh i see that you know but i kind of i just kind of hope that even if some people might have guessed the ending before that it's still a lot of fun you know i feel like yeah. reading agatha christie is about that pleasure well and this is a collection of short stories as you as you said it's not novel length and you kind of have to get down to the meat of the story pretty quickly. Um, what what was your did, did you have a, a word limit, a word count limit that you were working with? Yes, we did. They, there was a maximum limit. I can't remember, like something like 8000 words. They gave us a kind of range 
of wow. wanting the story to be within that. But I mean, there were writers who went beyond that and they were really fine with it as long as the story supported it, of course, as long as the pages were, um, you know, necessary. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they gave us a great deal of, of creative freedom. But they I mean, I have to say they were really, really wonderful to me because I needed to do this while I was writing my own novel. And so I had to handle both sets of deadlines at the same time. And there was a point at the beginning when the Agatha Christie estate was really like, we'd really love to see an outline from Jean of her story. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I had like, I had this idea of what I wanted to do, but the thought of like, writing an outline, you know, a kind of synopsis of the story. I, I was so busy trying to untangle my novel um, at that point. And, uh, you know, Anna Herv, the, um, the editor that we worked with a great deal, uh, who knows everything about Agatha Christie, was very calm. And she said, oh, let's just have a chat, Jean. And then she called me up and uh, she was like, so tell me what you're thinking. And I was like, blah, 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 blah. And then after the phone call, she writes me this document and she's like, what do you think about this? I'm like, oh my God, you're a genius. And it was basically everything I had said, but, you know, in a clear, you know, non-crazy format where you could actually understand what the story was about. And she's like, you know what? I'm just going to pop this over to Agatha Christie Legacy. And I was like, you wrote my outline for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so that that just really saved my bacon. Um, and then, of course, when it came time to actually write the story, it you know, I could refine the outline and work from there. But, you know, it's just sometimes I, I'm not a writer who can really write on more than one thing at a time. And the only reason I accepted this was because it was Agatha Christie. Oh, yeah. Normally, yeah. I yeah. had to. I had to. But normally I can really only do, you know, I can do one thing. I have to finish it. Then I can do something else in the creative sphere. I can write essays, but I can't write other fiction usually in between. Yeah. Ray Bradbury uh, famously talked about uh, writing short stories and and he said and and this is uh, uh, this is my interpretation of what he said that if you if you want to be a writer, you should start by writing a new short story uh, every week. And by the end of the year, you couldn't possibly have written 50 bad stories. <laughs> There's something in there is going to be good. And, you know, which is kind of a a flippant way of, you know, kind of making fun of the process a little bit. But there there's a lot of truth to what he said. Sometimes it's just getting there doing the work over and over un, until you figure it out. Um, and and then, you know, from there, you know, he recommended people then, you know, stretch their legs and go to longer works and things like that. Um, you have written novels and then, you know, wrote this short story for the collection did did the the change in in format um, did that alter the way you think about stories when you're all of a sudden limited to eight thousand words and I've got to I've got to tell this whole story but I have a much smaller canvas to do it in did that change the way you process stories? I mean, I think it it does it did but I mean you have to know I started as a poet. 
And um, mm. so the first, you know, piece of creative writing, the type of creative writing I did was poetry. And I was not somebody who wrote 10 page poems. Like I would write 10 line poems. And then for me, it was a real stretch to go to a short story. And then my short stories were like, you know, 10 pages. Like I, I'm not, right. I was not a lengthy writer. And so it was a real challenge to go from the 10 pages to um a novel, you know, that was for me very difficult to go backwards um, is, you know, is a pleasure. But I I mean, I have to say about Ray Bradbury and all of that. I do. I do think like this was easier because it was Agatha Christie. I had a model and, you know, I had established characters. I had an established world. But for me, it takes almost as much mental energy and as much time to write a good short story as it does for me to write a novel. I mean, obviously a novel is more complicated and longer, but to come up with that premise and with the characters, a a short story should not be underestimated. It's a huge amount of creative work. And, and a lot of times is much more powerful in, in the way that the story lands with the reader, uh, because you, you don't have all of the time for the, emotional ups and downs to to you know go to these highs and then recover and you know it's it it usually comes right out of the gate it's it's kind of in your face which is amazing i i think that's really true but i do think that one big difference between a short story and a novel is that i can hold an entire short story in my head you know i can hold the structure the themes it fits but a novel, I'm, I'm sure there are people who can do it, but I really can't. A novel, I really need to take notes. I have supplementary documents that help me figure out what I'm doing with the novel, that remind me of what I have done in the novel, um, so that I don't lose my way over the course of those hundreds of pages. Uh, I do have a question that I want to ask you, and I'm, I'm going to ask it in a way that I, I try not to give away too much of the story. Um, but when when the murder happens, uh, uh, you know, when a dead body appears uh, and Miss Marple just happens to be kind of snooping around in the way that she does and she overhears things um, and they're they're on a uh, on a ship, uh, by the way. So one, uh, we've got everyone contained. Nobody can go anywhere. And the um, the investigator even says, well, we're on a ship They're They're not going. I'm, I don't have to arrest anyone right away because they're not going anywhere. I can you know, kind of gather some more clues. Um, is is that beneficial when writing a mystery to kind of have closed confines to to be able to, um, uh, you know, not allow characters to just go off in any direction? Does, does having that um, – I can't think of the word that I want to use. Crucible. But the, the, y- yes, having them, you know, forced into a smaller area, does that – help the writing of a mystery? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that indeed that was what I liked about the idea of a cruise ship. The oh, the fact that you're stuck, you know, and, right. um, you know, first there's one body and then there's another and then there's panic that no one can get off the ship. And you know the murderer is there. You know, you know that whoever's committing these crimes is on that cruise ship with them. So um, that was really a lot of fun to write. 
I think that, you know, when you're writing a mystery uh, or any novel, really, that doesn't have that situation, you know, I, I try to recreate it in other ways. You know, you need to have you can't really have a book where the characters meet once and then they kind of all go their own separate ways. <laughs> you know, you need right. to kind of they're like sheep. You've got to herd them together so that they can interact and that they can have fights with each other and they can betray each other and all of those things. So it is handy if you are able to lock them into a certain location or place. But if not, then you need to create a situation where they have a reason to run into each other, where they have a reason to interact and be forced um, into conflict with each other. A couple of years ago, when the Murder on the Orient Express movie came out, um, I took all five of my children. We, my wife and I, have five kids, and all of us as a family went to see. This is this was right before all of my grown kids started getting married. So we we were all as a family together, which we can't do anymore. Um, but we all went um, to the movie to see this. And, you know, this was a hundred year old story at this point because it was right around the the 100 year anniversary of uh, of Agatha Christie's work. And I remember watching this movie on the big screen and thinking to myself, I've read this story 10 times. I've heard, you know, talk about this story my whole life. It's been in our cultural um, you know, collective forever. Um, and yet it was still, um, I, I still found myself, you know, going through the mystery in my head, trying to solve it, you know, who's, who's doing this, you know, and, uh, and, and my kids all loved it. And, uh, I just thought, what a timeless story this is. And what is it that a hundred years later, we're still, rereading um you know agatha christie's work still getting enjoyment out of it still seeing the brilliance in it and we're still telling stories like the way she did uh, what is it about her legacy that is such a endearing legacy yeah i think that's a really excellent question and you know coincidentally i was on npr's 1a yesterday with michael green who wrote the screenplay um, for that and for the newest oh, wow. movie, um, Death on the Nile. Yes. And it was it was kind of great to listen to his take on how he approached this writing the screenplay. And, uh, and he also said, he said, you know, Agatha Christie was just incredibly talented. And, you know, that's something that I think she, you know, we underestimate in her because her stories seem like such easy reading. And we forget that she's in many ways the template for the modern detective story. You know, she established so many of the norms that we follow today. Um, And I also think that the movies were kind of great in that, for example, Death on the Nile, I thought was really, I saw it recently. It was really delightful in that it followed the original book, but not completely. And I'm sure that there are fans who, you know, don't like it that it didn't follow it completely. But I I enjoyed that. I thought it was fun to see another take on it. It was fun to see some slight variations. It was great to see more diversity and inclusiveness. Um, I think, you know, it's kind of preserving a classic while adding a fresh twist. I love it. The new book is Marple, uh, Agatha Christie. 
12 new mysteries in the Miss Marple universe. You're going to love this book. I know I do. Uh, Gene has a story in it that is fantastic. You're absolutely going to love it. Uh, we'll put links in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for you to go out and grab it. It's available everywhere now. Um, Gene, you mentioned a couple of times this new novel that you're working on. What, what's What's going on with it? And can you tell us anything about it? Well, you're one of the first to hear because I'm just starting to talk about it now. Um, it's called The Leftover Women. And what happens in the novel is that a young Chinese woman uh, in China is devastated when she learns that her baby daughter has died very shortly after birth. But a little bit later, um, she finds out that the baby had not died, but had actually been given away for adoption by her husband to a wealthy American couple. And oh, when she, yes, and when she finds that out, she realizes that she has no choice but to follow them to New York City and do what she must. And that is where the book begins. Will you please come back on and talk to us uh, about it when it comes out? Oh, Hank, for you, I will come anytime because uh, I just love your work and I love chatting do, with you. Do Do we have a, a, a publication date yet for that book? We are probably going to have it within the next week or so. But right now, okay. I am afraid to say, but we will let you know once we know. Please do. Uh, Please do. And let's uh, let's do it again. Um, Gene, uh, if folks are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Well, um, of course, I have a website. So that's genequawk.com. That's J-E-A-N-K-W-O-K. And that's kind of the nexus of everything. But otherwise, I am on Instagram, Facebook, um, and Twitter. So I'd love to hear from anyone. We will link that up in the show notes as well. Gene, always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you so much for taking time to drop by today. Hank, thank you so very much for having me. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.